Episode 32 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with the Senior Physical Performance Coach at Huddersfield Town, Callum Walsh. Callum joined us to talk about his biggest lessons from working in different cultures, different countries and different leagues across the world. He also talked about what he's changed his mind about over the last few years or few seasons and he answered the same question that I I asked Darren Burgess in that what are some methods he might use with players that other coaches say isn't optimal, but it work, he's found that it works in that environment that he's been in at a certain time. Callum also touched on what he's going to be talking about at Soccer Science, and Soccer Science is the sponsor of this episode, so thanks to the guys at Soccer Science. Um, we're not far away from the conference now, so it's only a couple of weeks away, depending on when you listen to this podcast. You can still get tickets. Tickets are available either on the Soccer Science website or you can go on our website, footballfitfed.com, click network meetings and events, and that will give you the link to Soccer Science. And you can use code FFF10 at checkout for 10% off. We also now have on our website the link to our Southampton network meeting. So tickets are now available. Go to the same point on the website, footballfitfed.com network meetings and events and you can click on Solent or Southampton network meeting and you can come and see Chris Neville and the guys down at Southampton Uni um, present and it's all going to be based around pre-season so getting you ready for pre-season so it'd be great to have as many coaches there as possible as always please share this episode put it on your Twitter your Instagram story share it on Instagram share it on Facebook Send it out to um, your WhatsApp groups, however you can share it. It'd be great to get this word out and um, that everyone can, as many people as possible, can listen to the chat with Callum because some quality information in there. Enjoy the episode with Callum. Welcome to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today I'm joined by Callum Walsh, who is the Senior Physical Performance Coach at Huddersfield Town. Callum, thanks for coming on. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. I'm guessing you've got your feet up now after a long, long, hard season. Yeah, trying to enjoy some of the uh, the sunshine that Yorkshire finally has brought us after about six or seven months of being here. I know you've just mentioned before about you've been tackling some of the hills over that way as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's very hilly, so it's uh, it's not been fun getting out on the bike and running, but it's uh, it's a lesson to be learned. Keeping you in peak physical condition. Oh, wow, that's a big statement. Trying to trying to get close to it. <laughs> Good stuff. Now, would you want to start us off? I mentioned your current role there, but I know you've been here there, and everywhere over the last few years. So just fill us in on um, previous roles and what you've been up to. Uh, yeah, so this year I, uh, I started at Huddersfield Town. Um, started there around October time. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, out at Aspire in Qatar at Aspire Academy. Prior to that, I was working for Exos. I worked with them on on two separate contracts. One was with the Turkish national team uh, for Euro 2016. And prior to that was a club in Brazil uh, called Atletico Paranense, who just won the Europa League equivalent last year. And then before that, I was at Wigan and Cardiff. So taking this season into account, what are some of the biggest things that you've taken away from it that you're going to sort of carry into next season and seasons going ahead? Uh, I think every season is a challenge. Every season brings its its own challenges. 
Um, I think when you have a change of manager, trying to adjust to that is always a challenge. Um, not in terms of bad, but just because things are different, schedules are different, um, and having to deal with uh, different training regimes. Um, I think to always stay adaptable and flexible to to help what the manager needs um, is a lesson that I bought from previous roles into this one. But I think the one that I've really bought in is is how key um, staff behind the scenes can be. Uh, the staff this year as a department have been phenomenal at Huddersfield in terms of um, best practice at all points. Um, and for me, the, the big take home is that everyone kind of left their egos outside of the room. We've got some really good practitioners, but everyone is open to be checked and challenged and we kind of put everything on the table. We have a few heated debates and discussions, but all of it is for best practice. And I think if you go into every day with that, in that work environment, I think the results on the pitch can kind of disappear in terms of how, of your general mood, if that makes sense. I think sometimes when you're not so happy within the work environment, you look to justify things with the results. Whereas maybe this year, we've had it the other way around where off the pitch, I think the, the staff we have have been um, incredibly strong, great to work with. And I've enjoyed going into work every single day, uh, despite it being such a tough season. With that sort of culture, Callum, in terms of like everyone being challenged and, and taking, it, taking things on board, does that come down from the gaffer? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously I stepped into the department and the department was fairly well established uh, before I got there. And I think it comes from kind of two key things is, is our head of performance, John Iger, is really keen on um, being open, growth mindset. But I think when you start to look at the people they've recruited, we've, we kind of all fairly similar. Uh, we don't necessarily all believe the same things, but we all kind of believe in you know, listen, this is my idea. It might be wrong, um, but someone give me a hand. Or, for example, everyone feels comfortable enough, but I think also the big thing is safe enough. In our staff meetings, kind of go, listen, do you know what? Maybe I got that little bit wrong yesterday, um, but I'm thinking of doing this instead today. And then other people kind of help. So I think our head of performance really kind of sets down a culture of uh, growth and development, but equally safety so that everyone can kind of feel that they're just, they can be honest and it's not going to come back to to cause some issues later down the line as we know what the uh, the football environment or elite sport can be where it's a bit dog-eat-dog, dog, but there, there doesn't seem to be anything like that. And one main thing I wanted to ask you is with you um, having worked across different countries, different leagues, different cultures, what are some of your biggest takeaways? So when you've been to clubs like like you said in Brazil and, and over in uh, Aspire and then all and then obviously in the Premier League. What are some biggest takeaways for you? Um there is no right and there is no wrong. Um there's just a situation you're dealt with and there's probably two or three different ways of handling it. And you've got to pick one that you feel most comfortable with. Um so for example in Brazil you go into a country that's highly populated um, got a vast amount of talent um, that all want to be footballers and you can almost push and push and push and push to develop players every single day because the talent the talent process over there would be a bit like the uh, the Chinese Olympic system where it's kind of you push and push and push and the strongest survive but 
if I took that philosophy to Qatar, where the talent, where the population as a whole is much smaller, and then the talent population is even smaller again. So you compare it to say, an Icelandic football situation. If you kind of push and push and push, and two or three of those players drop by the wayside, you've then got no players. So there's no right and wrong. You just have to condition with the population you have in mind, probably the genetics that, that come through. Um, and like I say, there's there's no right and wrong. You just, have, you just have to be appreciative of that. I think what Brazil taught me more than anything was just how robust players could be. Um, I think probably in my early career, I was quite anxious and nervous anytime someone said, oh, I have a, have a tight this or a tight that. I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, let's keep them away from things. But in Brazil, these lads just got on and dealt with it. I think we had close to 80 games in 11 months. And lads were playing with lots of different knocks and niggles because they didn't want to get dropped because if they got dropped, they might never be seen again. So it kind of teaches you that players are probably more robust than you think they are. Um, and yeah, like you say, it's, it's, it's been interesting. And it, in terms of, of going over to a country like Brazil where you've had to uproot and go into a new league, a, a new sort of system... Um, a new team obviously as well was there anything you took in um, and tried implementing that didn't quite work or you had to tweak and amend um, I think the first thing for me was as anyone that knows me I talk quite a bit so one of my big things to connect with athletes to start with was making connections verbally and um, I obviously went in and didn't speak any Portuguese to start with so one of my key weapons as a coach to get buy-in to lead sessions had been taken away from me, um, which was a real test. Um, so that was, a, that was probably my biggest challenge to start with was such a big part of my coaching career has been how verbal I am, making connections with players, and I had none of that. So that was a real, um, that was a real struggle for me at the start. But again, once you start to get put into that situation, you start to sink or swim. And I think I managed to just about tread some water. But I think that obviously helped me then when I went out to Qatar or with the Turkish team where you maybe don't have the language, but you have other ways of coping. Um, I think it was interesting because when you go out there, there's so many games, like I said, almost 80 games in 11 months. You're wanting to do things certain distances away from games. You, you know, like you say, I'd grown up at a couple of clubs or started off at a couple of clubs. It was always two days recovery. Um, and then you wouldn't do strength work on here or you wouldn't do this here. But when it was Saturday, Wednesday or Saturday, or Sunday, Wednesday, every week for pretty much 11 months, you had to start to adapt that philosophy because if you didn't adapt that philosophy, you couldn't get anything done because it was either game day plus two or game day minus one. You know, there was, no, there was nothing in between for pretty much the whole of the year we were there. So again, if I would have taken the model that I'd worked with in the UK, where it was like, okay, we did X for strength on Wednesday, X for this on Wednesday, because they were far enough away from the games, it wouldn't have worked in that environment. And that, that challenge, that language barrier must have improved your coaching practice like loads 
clubs and, and taught you when you go because obviously returning back and going into a Premier League club you're not you're not working with all English players there'll be some players that don't speak the language so that that then obviously gives you that tool in your two toolbox to that you've dealt with that already doesn't it and and it must have improved your loads as a coach um do you know what I have to say I don't think I quite realized how much I improved in that area probably until I came home I think I counted the other day we have 13 nationalities um at Huddersfield and some of the things you you soon pick up is um to try and simplify the words that you use which I'd never had to do before I'd moved abroad because there's words that we use every day that we understand but people that are coming in that second language don't understand it sometimes people look at you and nod and they understand less than you think they do so you've got to break it down a little bit further for them um I think equally understanding people's cultures and what they're about, I was helped with. Um, and then the other one I've got really good at, and I can do it in lots of languages where I can't maybe speak French, but they'll be saying something and I know the word they're looking for and I don't know how I'd know it, but I think enough times working with people that try and search for a certain word for, for example, meeting, um, you know, I can hear them talking, what's the word, but, or whatever, and then they'll start discussing it in French. I'm like, are oh, you looking for this word? They're like, how do you know? Like, I don't know. It's just having played charades for three years or four years of living abroad, you start to get good at picking these certain words. Oh, actually, yeah, you mean this, because you know the context of the conversation, you know the context of what they're almost trying to say, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. That, that charade. Ads is a great analogy because that's that's essentially what it is, isn't it? It's uh, you're having to develop so many other skills to get your message across. Oh, hundred percent. And then you've equally got to get sort of buy-in, and you've got to kind of connect with people that are from completely different cultures. Um, you know, for example, I work with a player, um, and if you Google him, you'll see what an interesting character he is. He's called Volta. Um, he's quite famous in Brazil. He's quite large. Um, he's round about he was about 101 kilos standing at 5 foot 8 um, which is quite heavy um, but he was from a real sort of uh, favela didn't really speak any language really his childhood was heartbreaking but grew up in serious gangs and you wouldn't have put me and him being able to work together at all I'm from probably Somerset which is not the most um, notorious area in the country Um Quite a, quite a nice childhood. So for me and some guy that grew up in a favela to have a long term rehab, it was a uh, it was interesting to try and make a connection between the two of you. Yeah, that's that's stuff that you're not going to come across by staying in the leagues over here, isn't it? And getting exposed to to those sorts of things, and that's where you can learn from these cultures as well, isn't it? That you see different upbringings and different ways of living and like you've mentioned, a different sort of way of going about things with the with the Brazilians, how we, how driven they are to to achieve, because there's so many of them. Oh, of course, you know, and, and it was, um, again, seeing how hungry uh, these players were and, and what they did. They joined this sort of club at 15 years old and were away from home and lots of them toured. Most age groups had at least three or four competitions abroad, but they could be away for three, four weeks at a time. And sometimes it wouldn't be everyone goes. It would be like, okay, we've got 45 players in each squad and we're only taking 25. So the other 20 just have to stay at the training base. 
it's like, okay, well, if you want to get anywhere, you've got to train a little bit harder, work a bit harder and make sure you're on the next flight for the next competition. So these kids would work as hard as they could because they didn't want to be left at home away from their friends when all their friends were playing in America or Europe at 15, 16 years old. Another thing I wanted to ask you, Callum, was taking into consideration these clubs that you've been at, what are some things that you've changed your mind about over the last few years or few seasons? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think you're always trying to kind of uh, develop different things because I think every time you get put into a new environment, you uh, a new problem arises, and that might be because of the, the culture, because of the finances um or because of logistics you know for example the gym might not be a certain size or um you know the weather is 50 degrees for five months so you're constantly trying to have to reassess what you have done in the past and try and tweak it i think probably the biggest one was i've always been a big fan of movement screens um always and i used to like them not necessarily to predict injury but in terms of I think they gave me a good basis to connect one-on-one right at the start of the season with, say, a new player. But then equally, there was a few things I could pick out that I quite enjoyed. But I think as you get older, I think you start to... I'll look just more... Just as they're moving in basic movements, it won't necessarily be a movement screen. It might be when I'm taking pre-activation and I'm asking them to hip hinge or flex or any of these small little things to see, right, what is going on with this person when they're not of a when it's more subconscious, because I think you get maybe a, a truer sight of movement when it's a bit more subconscious um, and just seeing how they move. And I spend a lot of time with the guys when they go down into gym and they're doing their strength sessions where I'll just kind of go in, take an eye, see how they're doing certain movements and what maybe some compensations are and why. And then we sit down as a staff and discuss things and what we can do and, okay, what can we maybe do to adapt that to maybe help him or actually maybe eight out of the nine are doing it perfectly and we can I can kind of talk to some of the gym guys where actually I kind of feel he's struggling with this. He might try this, but you know, it's again it's that open forum of discussion just to be able to go back and forth with ideas. So I think that's probably been my biggest change. I think probably the second one would be more um I think when you're younger you kind of think if I get someone stronger, more powerful, they're gonna be quicker just out of process. Um, but I think as I've developed, I think there's a lot more areas of that to kind of go through to really ensure that you get that speed development transfer onto the pitch. Just going back to where you've said about the movement screens, do you think that that you have to go through those experiences of using those um, sort of systemized ways of working? Because a lot of it now is probably just from your experience, isn't it? That you've seen, you've seen these ways of moving over and over again, and and built this real um, knowledge of of spotting these movements. Whereas a younger coach or a less experienced coach might need to go through the um, systemized ways of working a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think I was really lucky. I mean, the one thing I I took away with me from Exos. Um, in terms of having worked for them, I was really lucky to have worked with a guy called Scott Perry, who had worked for the company for for years. And his eye for detail on movement was was absolutely um, outstanding. So he got to a point where he could see it when someone ran, um, 
and just pick stuff up. And I was like, wow, hold on, go back. And I'd have to sit and watch videos and he'd go down and watch videos and show me what he was looking at and why he was looking at it and what led to what. And I think, like you say, I think probably going through the system of what I went through, which was the FMS, where I think we did, between us, we did, there was four of us and we did 1,100 FMSs in one year. So probably what's that about? Just under 300 each. You get really good at spotting certain things and probably having that structure, although I'm probably not detailing it, I'm probably now seeing some of those compensations in a more relaxed fashion. I'm just not going through that systematic um, format, but probably a lot of those principles, like you say, I am taking forward naturally. And maybe, like you say, it was probably something I had to go through to, to learn and appreciate what I would deem good movement would be um, to get to to get to this point. And in terms of the, you mentioned there about the sort of strength relationship in terms of power up or, or, or speed, what are, what's your approach to speed development or what are some things that you, you think of that you, the, the way you've taught speed has changed over the last few years? Uh, right. So I, th- I think there's, again, as, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, there's for me a few different factors to it. I think beforehand, I kind of just thought, right, develop strength and power, all the sort of bread and butter stuff, people are going to get quicker. And then it kind of got to, well, actually, probably I'm going to need a bit more of a holistic approach to this. So then the foundations of mobility and stability came in of, okay, well, actually, if I give them the force, but if they can't attain a certain position when they're running or they can't, you know, get into full hip extension or these small things, that's whatever I'm putting into them in the gym isn't being transferred. So it kind of started getting me thinking, right, well, it's not just about force. It's also probably about the positions. So for the positions, you need range and obviously the mobility to, to attain it. And then the stability to hold those positions as well. So that kind of changed my basis, as it were. So I kind of thought, well, probably need a bit of mobility and stability in there to to base the the horsepower of the engine around. Um, And then you need the engine to to develop, to put it into the ground. But then you also need the skill in terms of teaching on the pitch, in terms of um, the application of force. And I think JB Marin has done some really... um, good stuff and there's loads on simply faster um there's loads of articles that really got into a couple years ago in terms of that application of force and horizontal force distribution it's not just how much force they put in but the direction of the force so again if they have the force but can't get into the right positions and then can't apply it correctly you're probably going to be limiting yourself and then on top of that, then you get to the point of there's also the perception and action. So something that we've started looking into as well um, within a lot of our warm-ups is a lot of the sort of truer agility stuff in terms of not just teaching the movement, but also putting players into situations where they are exposed to a lot of change of direction or exposed to certain movements and having to react off those movements because there's no good just being quick you actually have to perceive the movement as quick as you can so someone that might be slightly slower 
but perceives it quicker might attain the same outcome as someone that's quicker but perceives it slower. So I think you have to work on both sides of the spectrum. Um, and then probably the last one uh, would be regular exposure to to sprint distance because I worked with players in the past that we've probably done all these really good things in terms of strength and mobility and stability and we've seen a big improvement but equally was it that that was the improvement or the fact that we just got them to sprint above 90 to 95 percent once a week every week for sort of three months you know for example if that's a, a number six type player that is a holding center midfielder that never usually does that in terms of in a game or in training. But by the process of exposing them to that, you're going to get some improvements. Um, so again, I think for me, it looks as exposure to it, mobility, stability, strength and whereabouts on the force profile. You need to work in terms of force or velocity, the skill and the application of the force. And then also the last the sort of cherry on the top is that perception action stuff which is probably the most important when you talk about invasion game athletes and that's actually a lot what Jonas uh, Jonas Dodu spoke about when he came on um, he basically mentioned all the all the same sort of stuff and I know you guys put a video out didn't you not, not long ago about some of the speed stuff you were doing uh, yeah so it, it, it kind of turned into it as ever um, what, what happened was as ever with the change of manager, we would do um, certain stuff for high-speed running, uh, for hamstring health um, under the previous regime, which for the two and a half years the previous manager had been there was had worked really well. And funnily enough, lads actually, I wouldn't say enjoyed doing it, but got really into habit of doing it. Um, so even now, occasionally it's just sort of, box to boxes in a certain time and X amount of repetitions. And it just became what they did on Tuesday mornings. Um, and then we would train in the afternoons. Um, but then as ever with the change of manager, he didn't want, he didn't want that format of training. So we kind of had to think he wanted it. He wanted something different, which there's no right or wrong. As we've always discussed, you have to try and facilitate the new manager. So, I kind of had the discussion with a few of the department of, okay, we can't get maybe the volume of um, high-speed running in terms of more at the lower end, uh, but maybe we can get the intensity of it. So we started to expose players to it um, probably in January. Uh, and it, Yeah, probably end of January, and we do it once a week uh, where they hit 90 to 95%. Um, we tried a few different formats in terms of making it a race, making it fun. Um, and then we realized we probably actually have to go a bit more um, structured with it. So it's literally pole A to pole B in X amount of time. Um, and then with some of the faster ones, we're looking to obviously make that distance slightly further. Um, we built the distance up gradually over time. So it didn't become too kind of out there. So at first it was sort of, 20 meters then we snuck on two more and then two more and then two more until we've got to to where we are now and it just happened that kind of the media team were out filming it and then a few people started seeing it on twitter and it became quite good fun because lads were having races and now lads have kind of again got used to it it, it was a bit nervous at the start because they were very much like well you know 
why am I doing this on this day? Why am I sprinting maximally? A few of them, obviously the following days were a bit like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sore. I'm a bit sore. Okay, relax. So we just gradually built it into where by the end of the season it was norm. And um, they just got used to it. And they came in and they expected, they knew they had to do it. And now they've started to get where you see we've got three or four lads that are really not quick. They're, they're on a different scale. Um, you know, they are what I would class as Premier League quick guys. And now those guys are really kind of grouping themselves together in, in the same group. So they're racing each other. So there's that kind of competitive edge to it. So um, again, we, we prep them. It's, it's a longer warm up. So we prep them through all the different things and teach them movement mechanics in that. So hopefully over time, it's not just the exposure to it that helps hamstrings, but also the, the technical aspect of that as well. But again, we didn't want to throw in too much new stimulus too soon because otherwise, if you change it completely, there's a huge kickback. So the first probably six to eight weeks, we, um, we got to a point that we were just trying to get them through it and survive and get them used to doing it and then playing and not having any kickback. Um, and there is always that worry of the first couple of times you do it. If someone, if someone pulls up, this is done because we're never getting them back. Um, but like I say, from the end of January, we've been pretty, con- pretty consistent with it. We've done it every week. Um, and so far, the, the injury rate had, had been good. So I think that anxiety amongst the lads has reduced a little bit so we can start to expand what we do, not in terms of speeds or distances, but in terms of how much we look to teach at the start it's funny as well isn't it how it highlights the competitiveness amongst players as soon as you add the the races in and uh, you can see that in that video as well how, how much they want to win every single time they run yeah what, do you know what is they're just different beasts and uh, funny enough I was chatting to someone the other day when I uh, and they were saying about you know when you first went into football was the first thing that really shocked you was um, it's a competitiveness on the of it and I'm sure there's practitioners out there that if you've ever asked to be linesman in training and you get a decision wrong it's just it's the worst job in football is when you have to step in as a linesman for an in-house not an in-house game but you know whether it's eight versus eight four versus four whatever it is I don't pity anyone that does it because it's horrible because these lads are they're quick so it's hard to keep up and then if you give it on or off one of them is going to be shouting at you so they want to win every single day in training and uh, probably the higher up you go, probably the, the worse it gets. So I dread to think what the, you know, these Champions League clubs and how competitive some of those guys are because th- these boys every day kind of treat it like a, like a cup final. Yeah, it's one thing that Darren Burgess said when I asked him about any common traits of elite players and he said the training intensity... And, and literally wanting to win all the time uh, that's the oh. biggest thing you pointed out yeah do, do you know what and, and that kind of had funny enough I was listening to it the other week and, and that had reminded me of that same thing of the first time I went into it um, the player shall remain nameless I think I'd been there about two or three weeks at Cardiff and they gave an offside and he didn't talk to me for like two weeks and he came <laughs> in screamed at me like screamed at me I thought oh he's only joking here and then he just was shouting abuse at me and I was like all right, he's, he's clearly joking and didn't speak to me, like literally ignored me. I'm like, what's up? He's like, one offside. I'm like, but it was. Um, 
and I thought, gee, like, wow, like these lads really do treat it at a different level where, say, me and you might just go, uh, who cares? It's a game in training. You know, yeah. but that's probably what gets them to, to where they are. So I think that that's what always makes me laugh when people kind of say, oh, you know, these, uh, these players don't care. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't say that. You know, that's probably the bottom, the last thing I would label it at any professional athlete, really. Yeah. And one thing that I asked Darren that I wanted to repeat to you and get your opinion on is, is, is there anything that you do or you've done with players if other coaches were to look in on your practice, would say that it isn't optimal, but you find over your experience that it's worked for you or worked within a certain situation? Um, well, to be honest, I'd, I'd probably listen to, to Darren before you listen to me. Um, so th- this answer is probably going to be worse than Darren's. But I think there's a, a couple of things. I think um, I think sometimes not necessarily in terms of content of, of what I necessarily do, but the timings of it. So like I said, when we're in Brazil, people would look at you and go, well, you're doing strength training. I think sometimes we did it like less than 12 hours after the game, but it was, it was a case of the game finished at midnight because some games over there could kick off at 10, 10 30 at night. So the game finished at midnight and then they were in the next day training. And then the following day they were flying to the other end of the country, which could be a four-hour flight, and then playing the very next day. So you had the option of either getting in 24 hours after a game sometimes or 24 hours before. So you're kind of like, what is the, the lesser of the two evils? And I think the way we kind of drip-fed the strength work into them, it was never like huge, like huge stimuluses, but it was, it was always regular. So we were getting sort of minimal doses at least every week. And like I said, I don't think we, I don't want to say blew anyone up in terms of doms or whatever, but again, it got to that point where they were just used to doing it. And I remember Darcy Norman once saying to me, when I was a young practitioner, like saying, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit the science, but it fits the logistics. So if you're wanting strength training over a year, when we know the benefits of that in terms of maintaining performance, aiding with recovery, uh, injury prevention you're going to have to fit it in somewhere if you really believe in in its benefit now if you don't believe in it not a problem you can go a different way I'm not saying it's right and wrong but if your culture within the coaches you work in or backroom staff is that strength is beneficial because of A, B and C then I don't want to say you have to take risks but you have to put it in not necessarily not necessarily when the, the timing's optimal, but I think that's where the, the art within the science comes in. The more, the more experienced you get, you can get a strength stimulus without kind of really, I don't want to say causing damage, but without them really noticing it and you can kind of drip feed it in so it becomes the norm, if that makes sense. So you just drip feed, drip feed, drip feed. And I think the best analogy that was used to me was, again, Scott, the guy that I work with, for Exos was the uh, was the barcode theory. Okay, so if in six months you want to get them to to C, and you're starting at A, you can't just have one point. It's not just A to B to C, but it's like a barcode that you scan. It's lots of small little progressions that you might make regularly, but before you know it, you've got from A to C 
without them really noticing what a big jump you've made. And I think that was what I really learned within that format was it was slower than I would have liked, but we got to where we wanted to go in the end, but we had to be more careful with it. It just can't be like, right, boom, because you know what? We got Wednesday to recover, Thursday to recover, Friday, and then Saturday's game because we're four or five days away from the game. We never had that, I don't think, maybe once in the whole year. So we had to drip feed it in and prioritise quality of movement and then add some load on it and then work the stimulus in terms of what we wanted around where we wanted to get to. I think that's the key, isn't it? It's knowing exactly your priorities and then working with the time that you've got and I think when, when coaches don't know that and they're trying to fit everything into these small times, that's when there can be problems. But like you said, if there's um, like mobility or some speed exposure or some strength exposure, they're your priorities, then they're the things that you can get in first. Of course it is. And, and I think um, another coach, Nicole Rodriguez, says it really well. She she said to me uh, one time, it's, it's about the fire alarm check so that, if the fire alarm goes off in your session and you have to evacuate the building, you then have to be able to say, right, I've got what I need done. You know, you don't necessarily need an hour to an hour and a half in the gym, but you know, in elite sports, sometimes we get a half hour. Sometimes you get 20 minutes. Sometimes you might get 45, but the key is that if after 15, 20 minutes, all of a sudden the manager's like, boom, we need a meeting. You have to make sure, You've got your bread and butter done. Now, what that bread and butter depends on philosophy and methodology and what you believe in. But I think that's what a lot of young coaches do. They try and throw everything at it. And sometimes simplicity is harder to do because you feel like you're missing out on something. Whereas I think when you get a bit more experienced, I think you're, you feel okay saying, no, we don't need that today. We don't need that. So like I say, in those situations, we were getting a whole squad through strength and maybe and the squads were big so maybe 45 players we were getting them through in 20-25 minutes to a group strength session um, which is good going but again we had to go really minimalist but regular dosage so again pros and cons are both but as long as you're all on the same page it works well you know that's not that's not saying that's the only way to do it I'm sure if a different group went in they might have found a different solution that probably equally would have been as good, but we were where we were at the time. We felt that that was the best way. And as long as you're all on the same page, I think you can move stuff forward quite, quite successfully. And just to move it on, Callum, you're obviously one of the, one of the presenters at Soccer Science, which is not too far away now, depending on when the guys listen to this. Do you want to give a little preview about what you're going to talk about? Um, oh, so it's around developing the elite football athlete. Um, I've been probably quite lucky in terms of having worked at first team level, both um, championship, oh, starting League Two, sorry, many years ago. Um, League Two, championship, Premier League, up to international. I've also worked with youth athletes, obviously in Brazil, uh, club and international based, and then Aspire. So just developing speaking about developing the player from sort of A to B and what we kind of feel the key the key factors in that are. Now, um, 
I've not met Matt or, or Shane uh, before, um, so it should be fun. I'm sure there might be some heat debates. We might not agree on everything, but equally that doesn't matter because there's no right and wrong. Um, in terms of philosophies, everyone kind of picks their stuff based on their beliefs, which is backed up by all the research that they've worked through and everything. So when I say there's no right and wrong, I don't mean in terms of stuff, all the stuff will be scientifically valid, but in terms of just because I do A doesn't mean that B is bad and vice versa. Um, So it should be interesting coming at a couple of different angles. So obviously Matt's been at Spurs a good few years and and Shane at, at Manchester City. So, Hopefully we'll have uh, an eclectic mix of uh, a couple of guys that have worked really specifically more with youth than I have. And then maybe myself, where I've had a bit more first team experience than them. And we'll kind of meet in the middle and see, right, what do they have? What do I have? And, and how we can get them from that 12-year-old athlete or nine-year-old athlete into a first team player at a professional level. Because ultimately, the game is getting quicker and quicker and quicker and you have to have some physical capabilities to withstand playing so you know games where you're talking 10 11 12k whatever x amount of high speed running if you're not good athletically you cannot basically survive and i know we talk about other players that can be better at other things at chavia pirlo or whatever but they're really exceptional at what they do and they're not what I would call the norm. Um, and players like that will always come through. But to give someone the best chance to getting through, I think if they're not technically or tactically as good as those players we just spoke about, they need to be able to survive the game and do what the uh, the requirements are, both from a normal game, but equally what certain coaches might ask for them because certain coaches might have high demands on centre mids, some wide players. You look at, say, maybe a Crystal Palace who play more of a, a low block with a counter. They have a certain physical profile that they will look to recruit and use and guys going from back to front very quickly. Now, there's players that won't fit into that system, but it doesn't mean that they're not good players and vice versa. Um, so hopefully we'll discuss around those. I'm sure there'll be some um, heated debate coming from the audience and some people telling us that we're talking rubbish and hopefully uh, Shane and Matt can answer those questions and I can try and avoid some of those <laughs> I like it I like it and if anyone wants to um, go to Soccer Science there are tickets still available at this present time so it's 21st of June um, in Manchester at Hotel Football so it's going to be quality so you'll be able to see Callum speak there. So, Callum, what's the plans uh, leading up to that? Have you just got a bit of time to chill or have you got any other speaking engagements or anything? Um, so, the, uh, what have I got? I've got a week or oh, a little bit of downtime, a holiday, and then we've actually got our, our pre-season testing in around that time. So, um, my, my boss has very kindly let me nip out for a couple of hours um, and Reese has kindly helped me with the schedule to enable me to do both. So um, we'll be back early for pre-season testing and straight in, but the speaking engagement hopefully will be a positive one. And hopefully I won't put um, too many people to sleep in the audience. 
I'm sure that won't be the case. There's going to be some quality stuff on the day, I'm sure. Um, where's the, if anyone's got any questions, where can they reach out to you? Um, Twitter's probably the best one. I don't really do Facebook. Um, nah, probably Twitter, to be honest, um, which is at Walshy2123. Um, anyone that wants to reach out to me there um, or drop me an email on callumwalsh.performance at gmail.com which is the longest email address in the world um so yeah always free to uh to talk shop and uh, answer any questions if anyone has any amazing mate well thanks a lot for coming on and i'll um if i don't speak to you before i'll see you at soccer science perfect thanks very much for inviting me on no problem thanks a lot mate big thank you to callum for giving up his time and coming on the podcast it was great to speak to him. You can follow Callum's work. He's on Twitter at Walshy2123. And he's also good enough to give his email address. So just to repeat that, it was callumwalsh.performance at gmail.com. So you can go and follow Callum. And if you've got any questions for Callum, I'm sure he'll be willing to answer them. Or you can come and see him at Soccer Science on the 21st of June in Manchester. I think some of the... Biggest takeaways for me were where he said about leaving ego out of the room um, when the coach is discussing how they're going to go about things. I think that was a big thing for me. And that's, uh, he talked about growth mindset and that's how they've worked at Huddersfield and it's led to um, a good relationship between coaches. So that was really interesting. And then he spoke about his charades analogy. Um, when he was speaking with uh, or working with players even that didn't speak the same language. So that improved his his coaching um, qualities or his quality as a coach that he, it put him out of his comfort zone. He had to develop um, an extra layer of coaching because they weren't speaking the same language. So that was really interesting to speak to him about that. And then also the stuff about where you're talking about the movement screen. So throughout Callum's experience, he's used a lot of movement screens and he now feels like he's got to a point where he can watch players move uh, and then pick out possible asymmetries or, or areas to work on with players. But the, what we said about in the chat was that this, this has come from experience and it's not necessarily something that we just recommend straight away for coaches to go into if you're still early on in your career. You might need to use a system and these systems have been created over experience and time. So it's good to use that, but to develop your quality as a coach like Callum has. So they were the three biggest takeaways for me. Just to repeat again, if you want to come and see Callum um, speak at Soccer Science, tickets are available still. 21st of June at a hotel football next to Old Trafford. Tickets are available on our website and you can use code FFF10 at checkout uh, to get 10% off. And... Next week's podcast is going to be with our next host of our network meeting. So we're going to be down at Solent University in Southampton. Chris Neville is going to be hosting the meeting and Chris is on next week's podcast. So it's already recorded. It's a top episode with Chris. He's a really experienced coach. So it was great to speak to him about his time with Portsmouth, Blackburn and also England as well. And his current job as well with the university. So you can check that out next week. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Please share the show with as many people as possible. And I will speak to you next week.